Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Jason Cowley, editor of the New Statesman magazine. Welcome to the fine setting of One Bird Cage Walk and to this New Statesman lecture. The New Statesman celebrated its centenary last year, and I'm delighted to say that the old publication is once again in robust health, both as a magazine and in various digital versions. I'm delighted also that the First Minister of Scotland, Mr. Alex Salmon, is here with us this evening at our invitation to make the case for Scottish independence right here in Westminster. Now, when I went to see the First Minister at his official residence, Butte House in Edinburgh, last summer, he said to me that we're in the early stages of what he called a phony war. We're just clearing the ground, you said. Well, the ground has been cleared, and the battle, if indeed we can call it a battle, has begun in earnest. Um, a few words about the format tonight. The First Minister will speak for about 30 minutes, after which you'll have the opportunity to ask questions. I'm sure all of you will have many questions. Um, Timetable is pretty tight. He has some broadcast interviews to give. So we're aimed to run, it's 22.7 now, so we're aimed to run to about... 20 to 8. I hope you all have your copy of the Scotland Special, in which the First Minister published an essay and indeed interviewed Judy Murray of Murray Tennis fame. I hope you have Scotland's Future. I've been asked to mention this, a document that would tell you all about uh, independent Scotland. Anyway, you're not here to hear me speak, so without further ado, may I ask the First Minister to step forward and to tell us why Scotland's future should be in Scotland's hands. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Jason, I want to clarify that rather thin document that Jason was holding up. That's only the abridged version. Uh, I mean, the, the full version is much, much of Scotland's future, much, much bigger than that. Uh, and I'm sure there are, uh, are copies uh, around. But th this is the... Uh, this is the second time in the last eight do days that I've been uh, next uh, door to the United Kingdom Cabinet. Uh, last week they, they paid a, a flying visit to Aberdeen while the, the Scottish Cabinet was in Port Lethen, just uh, five miles away. 
Uh, and now this week I'm here at the, the heart of Westminster, and I mention this because if David Cameron does walk in any time during this, uh, this session, then I've got uh, the exclusive uh, permission from Jason to change this into a debate format. Uh, the, what I also say that I was uh, interested, there was a story in Independent today, uh, under the headline, is this the, the scariest uh, photograph ever? And it's a picture of David Cameron and myself at King's Cross Station, which was certainly scary to me, but nonetheless, there we were at King's Cross Station uh, uh, advertising a a network rail rover card. Uh, But these were actually lookalikes, as opposed to... And my complaint about this, uh, and I think what the Independent were alluding to in terms of the scariness of the picture, is that his lookalike looked more lookalike than my lookalike. My lookalike hasn't caught up with my five plus two diet. Uh, and I, I, I demand accurate doppelgangers. I, I, I think it's only reasonable I get the respect of uh, uh, having a doppelganger who goes on the, the, the same diet as, uh, as me. But it's worth, worth a look. But, uh, you know, just for the record, we weren't at, uh, in a railway carriage yesterday uh, and we didn't have the debate that the country should see. But uh, the serious point is that debate will have to take place, uh, and it will have to take place sooner rather than later. Now, it is a pleasure to be back in uh, Westminster to deliver this, uh, this new statesman lecture uh, uh, fall, and I, I've been asked by Jason to emphasize this point, just as I asked him to emphasize the white paper. I hope you have all bought uh, a copy of your Scotland special edition, and I hope that it's given you some sense of the vitality of the debate that's currently taking place in Scotland. Now, I want to start tonight's speech by emphasising a a point which occasionally the media and certainly UK politicians sometimes lose sight of. Uh, If we vote yes in September, uh, then Scotland will become independent uh, in more promising circumstances than virtually any nation in history. Uh, In fact, nobody really doubts that an independent Scotland could be successful. Uh, I shall quote uh, the other doppelganger. Even David Cameron once put it like this. Supporters of independence will always be able to cite examples of small, independent, thriving economies such as Finland, Switzerland and Norway. It would be wrong to suggest that Scotland could not be another such successful independent country. Uh, He should have a word with his Chancellor occasionally, shouldn't he? But David Cameron omitted to mention that Finland's GDP per head is 10% higher than the UK, Switzerland is 50% higher, uh, and Norway is 85% higher per head. But nonetheless, the point is well made. Now, that consensus, the consensus about whether Scotland could be a successful independent country, it reflects the underlying economic strength of Scotland. We would become an independent country as one of the wealthiest nations in the OECD. Scotland has contributed more in taxes per person than the rest of the UK for every single one of the last 30 years. Uh, Last Thursday, Standard & Poor's, the rating agency, which for the duration of this speech I'm rechristening Standard & Rich, uh, joined the consensus. It noted, quote, In brief, we would expect Scotland to benefit from all of the attributes of an investment-grade sovereign credit characterised by its wealthy economy, roughly the size of New Zealand, high-quality human capital, flexible product and labour markets, and transparent institutions. That's of standard and poor. However, the current balance sheet 
is only part of the economic story. We should also look at the potential uh, of a country. Scotland has more universities in the world top 200 per head of population than any country in the planet. We have huge expertise in engineering and life sciences, an astounding cultural heritage, immense energy and natural resources, and above all, a skilled and inventive people. So there is no doubt, none whatsoever, that Scotland could be an independent country. The question the people of Scotland will answer on the 18th September is about whether we should be an independent country. And I want to put that forward tonight uh, as essentially a choice between two futures. That's the real choice that I want to talk about this evening. In one way, Scotland with one choice will be part of what is an increasingly imbalanced United Kingdom with high social inequalities, growing regional disparities, and more often than not, governments we didn't vote for. With the other, the other choice, we'll have the powers that we need to create a better country, to build the Scotland we want to see, the Scotland we seek. Now, I want to start with a letter sent recently by 27 Church of England bishops blaming the rise in food banks on, quote, cutbacks to and the failures in the benefit system. Now, the letter struck me for, for two reasons. The first is that when I was uh, helping the Edinburgh South Food Bank just before Christmas, the Trussell Trust told me that in 2011, they have one food bank in the whole of Scotland, and now they run 43. 50,000 people in Scotland have used them in the last nine months. And the second reason that the letter struck me was the, the strength, the unusual strength of the, the language used by the good bishops. It's been reflected, actually, in some of the comments recently made by the Archbishop of Westminster, now the Cardinal, Vincent Nichols. And it struck me because it reminded me that it's 25 years ago, almost exactly to the day, that leaders of Scotland's three largest churches joined together to condemn a UK government policy as, quote, undemocratic, unjust, socially divisive, and destructive of community and family life. That letter the letter from the uh, Scottish churches was written on the eve of the introduction of the poll tax in Scotland and it expressed perfectly the widespread anger about the tax which commanded support from only 10 of then 72 Scottish members of Parliament. Uh, and as this audience will know, the poll tax became a totemic issue in Scotland, the supreme example of a, a policy imposed upon us in the teeth of massive public opposition and one reason why the Scottish people endorsed devolution so overwhelmingly in 1997 was to stop anything sim similar ever happening again. So it's worth repeating that phrase used by the church leaders 25 years ago. Undemocratic, unjust, socially divisive, destructive of community and family life. Last April, the, the bedroom tax came into force. It is affecting more than 70,000 households across Scotland, 80% of whom have a disabled person. It was opposed by more than 90% of Scotland's MPs. And as we know, it's part of a package of welfare changes, again opposed by more than 90% of Scotland's MPs, which have seen the growth of food banks in which children's charities now forecast will see tens of thousands more children born into poverty by 2020. However, these policies, it should be understood, are exacerbating social trends which have actually prevailed over some considerable period of time. The OECD, the Organisation of Economic Cooperation and Development, reported three years ago that since 1975, inequality among working age people has increased faster in the United Kingdom than in any other member country. 
Even before the current government came into office, Professor Danny Dorling calculated the UK was the fourth most unequal country in the developed world. And it hardly seems likely that the position has improved since then. And regional inequalities have grown alongside social inequalities. The UK now has the highest levels of regional inequality of any country in the European Union. The UK's business secretary recently called London, quote, a kind of giant suction machine draining the life out of the rest of the country, unquote. Now, I'm uh, a lot more moderate in my views than Vince Cable. I'll just repeat that. I'm claiming to be more moderate than a liberal Democrat, okay? London, in my estimation, is one of the world's great cities, uh, and much of that success should be celebrated. And it uh, should be said also the, the gravitational pool of London isn't new. This building itself was constructed at the end of the 19th century because the Institution of Mechanical Engineers, which had been based in Birmingham since 1847, decided it should move to a London headquarters. But London's influence is infinitely stronger now. And it's impossible to deny that the attraction of capital and talent to London is one of the defining features of the UK economy. A recent report by the Centre of Cities noted that 80% of private sector job creation was taking place in London. And Professor Tony Travers of the LSE said, London is the dark star of the economy. Inexorably sucking in resources, people and energy, nobody knows quite how to control it. And again, David Cameron argued before he became Prime Minister that an economy with such a narrow foundation for growth is fundamentally wasteful and unstable. But the record is a lot weaker than the Prime Minister's words. A couple of years ago, the Institute for Public Policy in the Regions published a report called On the Wrong Track. It found that public spending on major transport infrastructure amounted to £2,600 per head in London and £5 per head in the northeast of England. That's £5 per head in the northeast of England. Now, I'm the First Minister of Scotland, meaning all of Scotland. Uh, and if the government which I lead were responsible for such massive disparities, we wouldn't chan stand a chance of re-election. There's a growing realisation that wealth and opportunities are too concentrated geographically as well as socially. And UK government policies are working for too few, denying opportunities for too many. Britain is imbalanced. When I, uh, when I sat across the road first in the, the Westminster Chamber, uh, the redoubtable Eric Heffer, the MP for Liverpool Walton, used to sit right behind me uh, on the Labour backbenches. Uh, and Eric hadn't always favoured uh, devolution, but the experience of uh, Margaret Thatcher's government changed his mind. Uh, and whenever I was making speeches about Scottish independence, I used to hear Eric growling behind me, remember Alec? Liverpool's coming way. <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting tonight that we take up Eric Heffer's offer. But it is interesting. In the last year, we've seen a real determination from councils and cities in the north of England to see a prosperous and empowered Scotland as an opportunity as opposed to a threat. The Association of Northeast Councils in Cumbria commissioned academic research which found, and I quote, the prospect of further autonomy for Scotland is also stimulating new interest in the North East Cumbria and Scotland to work more collaboratively together. We're now seeing a, a practical expression of that as the local authorities in both countries working together begin to explore 
how best to jointly promote business, tourism, and above all, transport links. The Borderlands Initiative, as it is known, highlights that its practical cross-border cooperation, which would continue, indeed, could be strengthened by Scottish independence. Uh, when the nations of these islands share a, a partnership of equals, based on our many areas of common interest. And after Scottish independence, the growth of a, a strong economic power in the north of these islands would benefit everyone, our closest neighbours in the north of England more than anyone. There would be a, a northern light to address the influence of the dark star, rebalancing the economic centre of gravity across these islands. Now, there are those who worry that Scottish independence would leave an England entrenched in conservatism, as Helena Kennedy put it in the, the New Statesman uh, edition. However, it's worth noting that since 1945, there actually have only been two elections, in 1964 and the, and the first election of 1974, where the largest party at Westminster would have been different if Scotland had been independent. Uh, these two governments sat for a total of 26 months. Independence would have very little impact on the political arithmetic at Westminster. Although it would finally provide the definitive answer to the West Lothian question, Scottish MPs would no longer vote on policies primarily or entirely concerning England. Indeed, Scotland, I would argue, will be a more influential and valuable as an independent nation than we can be by contributing 9% of Westminster MPs. We wouldn't, of course, always get things right. Sometimes the rest of the UK might learn from our mistakes. But we would exert a powerful positive influence, for example, the beacon of progressive opinion. And independence would address a profound democratic deficit in Scotland. Not a, a passing inconvenience, but a debilitating disconnect at the very heart of politics. I'm uh, 59 years old. Now, I can see you all thinking you don't look at... Uh, I know you're all thinking that. For more than uh, half of my life, Scotland has been ruled with parties with no majority. In the last four UK elections, the Conservatives in Scotland have scored Nilpwan, one, one and one seat, respectively, over the four elections. Now, this is not an abstract point, a constitutional theory. It affects the well-being and prosperity of individuals and communities across the country. The Conservative Party have lost every general election in Scotland since 1959, but have succeeded in ending up in government for 31 of the last 55 years. Now, I spoke earlier about the bedroom tax. It's a good example, not simply because it's unjust, although it is, but because it's a policy that would never have been passed by a parliament with Scotland's interests at heart. It's driven primarily by rising rental and housing benefit costs here in London and the southeast of England. And although 60,000 people in Scotland will be penalised unless they move into single-bedroomed accommodation, we currently have a supply of just 20,000 single-bedroomed homes for social rent. In many parts of the UK, the bedroom tax is unpopular. In an independent Scotland, it would have been unthinkable. Because of devolution, because of having the Parliament, the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats and the SNP Government have been able to work together in the Scottish Parliament to mitigate the impact of the bedroom tax. As a result, nobody will face eviction in Scotland this year solely as a result of that tax. But we haven't abolished the bedroom tax because the Scottish Parliament doesn't have the power to abolish the bedroom tax. 
Instead, we've developed a, an expensive framework of measures to try and cancel out the consequence of a policy that nobody in Scotland would ever have come up with in the first place. Wouldn't it have been better for us just to have responsibility for the welfare system instead of having to compensate for a policy we didn't vote for? Uh, and the bedroom tax is not an isolated example. Scottish MPs have voted against the Welfare Benefits Up Rating Bill, Child Benefit Means Testing, Cuts in Capital Spending, Royal Mail Privatisation, and many, many more of the current coalition policies. But despite all of that, all of these policies have been or will be implemented in Scotland. When the Scottish people voted overwhelmingly for devolution in 1997, many of them thought it would address the democratic deficit in Scotland. However, devolution has dramatised, not ended, the democratic deficit. Now, that's partly because of the contrast people now see between the record of the Scottish Parliament and the record of the Westminster Parliament. Uh, there's a contrast of approach. In the northeast of uh, Scotland last week, the UK Cabinet, on its third visit to Scotland in a century, uh, jetted into Aberdeen and then jetted out without any engagement with the public whatsoever. The Scottish Cabinet, on our 26th public meeting outside Edinburgh in the last six years, advertised in the press to encourage as many people as possible to come along and ask the whole Cabinet questions for the best part of an hour. There's also a, a contrast, I believe, in language. In some of the rhetoric that is used in a debate emitting from the Westminster Parliament, people are labelled. They're termed strivers or skivers, shuckers or workers. That language, thankfully, scarcely features in the debate in Scotland. There is a, a shared recognition that society isn't divided between skivers and, sh and strivers, one group who pay in, another who take out. Everyone contributes to society in different ways at different times, and everyone needs public support in different ways at different times. There's a contrast in policies. Successive Scottish Parliaments, and I'm talking here about the Parliament as a whole, not any single party, have legislated for progressive purposes. We have promoted social justice alongside economic prosperity. Indeed, we see social justice as essential to sustainable economic prosperity. That doesn't mean we're perfect or we never make mistakes. It simply reflects the fact that members of the Scottish Parliament of all parties have worked to reflect the values, tackle the priorities, promote the aspirations of the people who voted for them. That's why there's a very clear majority of people in Scotland who want the Scottish Parliament to have control over welfare and taxation. And I believe over the next six months that will translate into clear support for independence. It's interesting to look at the most recent Scottish Social Attitude Survey. This shows 62% of people, 62%, trust the Scottish Government to work in Scotland's interests. For the UK Government, the figure is 32%. And that helps explain why occasional visits by Westminster politicians to Scotland are being and will be received so badly. The first Scottish Parliament in 1999 introduced world-leading homelessness legislation. The second Parliament tackled Scotland's health inequalities through the ban on smoking in public places. The third Parliament reintroduced free university education and unanimously passed the most ambitious climate change targets in the world. This Parliament is seeing world-leading action to address Scotland's relationship with alcohol and legislation to expand and indeed transform early years education and childcare. 
Alongside that, we've adopted policies to support economic growth, cutting business rates, promoting Scotland abroad, giving coordinated and very innovative support to capital expenditure and infrastructure and key sectors of the economy. We now have higher employment, lower unemployment and lower economic inactivity than the UK as a whole. In the last uh, three weeks, people in Scotland have been uh, and have seen an array of approaches from the UK government, what they apparently call their dambuster strategy. Uh, we were love-bombed from a distance by David Cameron and then dive-bombed at close range by George Osborne. The UK cabinet came up to Aberdeen but chose not to, to meet the members of the public. Uh, I believe that George Osborne's speech on Sterling three weeks ago, the Sermon on the Pound, will come uh, to be seen as, as monumental an error as Margaret Thatcher's sermon on the, on the mound some 25 years ago. It encapsulates diktats from on high, which are not the, the strength of the Westminster elite, rather they're a fundamental weakness. And I want to make a contrast, and we shall make a contrast, that we will seek to engage uh, with people across England uh, on the case for progressive reform. George Osborne, in his speech in Scotland, referred to Scotland as foreign, a foreign country no less than seven times. This was the danger, he said, making Scotland a foreign country. Yet the Chancellor surely knows that the Ireland Act of 1949, which was negotiated after infinitely more difficult circumstances than we have, specifically states that Ireland is not to be regarded as a foreign country. And Scotland will not be a foreign country after independence any more than Ireland, Northern Ireland, England or Wales could ever be foreign countries to Scotland. We all share ties of family, friendship, trade, commerce, history, culture, which have never depended on the Parliament here at Westminster and will endure and will flourish long after independence. Now, Osborne's speech was also mistaken in its economics. It totally misrepresented the size of Scotland's financial sector. It offered the most facile and misleading comparison with the Eurozone. It was counterproductive in its politics. A day-tripping Conservative minister saying no to Scotland before flying back to Westminster. And it contradicted, above all, the best interests of the rest of the United Kingdom. His proposed policy of no sterling zone would impose transaction costs on English businesses, it would remove Scotland's substantial oil and gas exports from the sterling balance of payments. And by laying sole claim to the, as a continuing state to the public asset of the Bank of England, nationalised in 1946, it would see the UK government take full responsibility for the liability of the £1.6 trillion of national debt. Now, the, the New Statesman edition this week carries an article from David Sheffer, the professor at Northwestern uh, in Chicago who served as the US ambassador at large during President Clinton's administration. Professor Sheffer points out that, quote, nothing in international law requires Scotland to pay one sterling pound of UK debt if the rest of the UK is deemed a continuator state in this way. I should stress that we've already indicated uh, on page 345 of the white paper that with agreement we would service a proportionate share of the UK national debt. Any reasonable approach to negotiation would, prepare, would propose a share of assets and a share of liabilities. That is simply the right thing to do. 
and therefore for the Chancellor to put the rest of the UK potentially in a position of being landed with all of the UK's gargantuan national debt is at best reckless and at worst totally irresponsible. Now it should be said that once the current campaign bluster is done with, I suspect, I know actually, the UK government will return to the common sense reasons set out in Clause 30 of the Edinburgh Agreement. That is that following the referendum, both sides will accept the result and act in the best interests of the people of Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom. But this current dam-busters rhetoric has betrayed an attitude as antiquated as it is unacceptable. From the myopic perspective of the Westminster elite, Scotland is last among equals. And over the next few months, each and every time we hear another of these lofty interventions telling us all the things we can't do, it will elicit a clear response in Scotland, and that is that the days of governance by Westminster diktat are over. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there is a, a second future available to people of Scotland, one where we use the powers of independence to transform our country rather than mitigate other people's mistakes. So don't let them tell you we can't build a, a better country. Well, let's take childcare uh, as an example. Two weeks ago, the, the Scottish Parliament's Children and Young People Act was approved. It will see a major increase in childcare provision to 600 hours a week for many two-year-olds and all three- and four-year-olds. It's an important step, but one which uh, falls short of our ambitions for childcare. Those ambitions for transformational change, I would submit, can only be achieved with independence. Now, that's partly because independence allows us to choose different spending priorities. We can decline, for example, to finance the madness of a new Trident programme and invest in the future instead. But most importantly, only independence allows us to benefit from the success of our policies. We've been part of a, a sustained drive to increase women's employment in the last 18 months. The female participation rate is now higher in Scotland than any country in the UK, having increased by over three percentage points in the space of one year, by 74,000 women now participating in the workforce. Using 2012 figures, getting female participation in the workforce up to the same levels they have in Sweden would require an increase of six percentage points or so. The scale of that increase translated into employment would generate around an additional £700 million a year of tax revenues. So what's the problem? Why don't we just go ahead and do it? Well, the problem is, under current arrangements, the overwhelming bulk of these revenues go straight to the UK Treasurer in London. And I tell you, I can see no sign whatsoever in George Osborne's conduct over the last month, over his whole political career, indeed over his whole life, that the first thing he would do with £700 million of new revenues created by a Scandinavian-style transformation of childcare policies is to give these revenues back to Scotland to fund the policy that made it possible. Retaining that revenue in Scotland is what will make that transformation in childcare affordable and sustainable. With devolution, we bear the financial costs of social investment. With independence, we receive the full benefits. <clears throat> Second example is, uh, is population. Back in November, the UK government welcomed a report from the Institute of Fiscal Studies which was about actually as damning a criticism of its own policies as it's possible to imagine. And like last week's report from Standard & Poor's, which found Scotland's wealth levels to be comparable to Germany's, 
The Institute for Fiscal Studies recognised Scotland's current economic strength. Scotland has had a lower budget deficit than the rest of the UK over the last five years. The IFS made it clear that our debt-to-GDP ratio on independence would be lower than the UK's. However, the Institute of Fiscal Studies also predicted that Scotland's population might only grow by 4% in the next 50 years, while the UK's might increase by more than 20%. That's the main reason that the report was welcomed by the UK government. Now, this is part of a, a problem that goes back generations. Scotland's population has increased by just over 10% in 100 years, from 4.8 million to 5.3 million, while the population of England has increased by almost 60%. In recent years, successive Scottish governments, not just this SNP one, have worked to address that by attracting people to Scotland to study and then allowing these people to work if they wish to in our country. Until the UK government policy changed, we had some success. The 10 years from 2001 to 2011 saw Scotland's highest population growth in a century. In fact, we saw a higher growth in 10 years than the IFS is predicting over the next 50 years, which is perhaps a lesson why you should take population forecasts with an even larger pinch of salt than economic forecasts. However, any reasonable person reading that report would draw the conclusion that Scotland starts from a position of economic strength and that a long-term demographic challenge can be tackled. The UK government's approach is quite different. It seems to be suggesting it'll do nothing at all about Scotland's low population growth. In fact, it'll pursue immigration policies which make the problem worse. In other words, the UK government's vision for Scotland, if we stay tied to Westminster, seems to be one where Scotland, energy-rich, resource-rich, talent-rich, eventually becomes dependent on the rest of the UK at some unspecified point in the future because we haven't been able to address a problem that was a century in the making and which we have decades to sort out. Now, how can that possibly be a positive vision for the future of Scotland? And it raises the obvious question, why would anyone accept that future when instead we could choose to change it? Ladies and gentlemen, choosing to change, to seize opportunities to, to meet challenges, is at the very heart of this debate that's taking place. What we want to do is to build a better future, to use our natural and human resources to create a fairer and more prosperous country. And the fundamental truth at the heart of the, the case for independence is that the best people to do that, the very best people to make decisions about Scotland's future, are the people who live and work in Scotland. At the start of this speech, I, I referred to the letter sent by the Scottish church leaders 25 years ago. I want to end with a, another voice from Scotland's post-war history. One of the, the finest Scottish political speeches of my lifetime was the Glasgow rectorial address given by Jimmy Reid in 1972. He spoke about the alienation felt by many people in society. He described it as the frustration of ordinary people excluding from the forces of decision-making, the feeling of despair and hopelessness that pervades people who feel with justification that they have no real say in shaping or determining their destinies. It's a speech which still resonates today. If anything, its relevance has increased over these decades. Now, independence on its own it will not address alienation, although it will give us the powers to do something about it. But one truly wonderful thing about the debate that's happening in Scotland just now and the vote on the 18th September 
it is fundamentally a time not for alienation, but for engagement and for hope. Because this referendum isn't about politicians. It's not about me or David Cameron. It's not even about David Bowie. <laughs> it's not about standard life, and it's not about standard and poor's. It's not about the press, and it's not about the broadcasters. It's not about the elites in London or the elites in Edinburgh. It's about the people, the people of Scotland. Adley Stevenson once referred to a moment before presidential elections when people became reconciled to the requirements of the modern age. That moment of uh, supreme clarity and often of fundamental reassessment he called the liberal hour. On referendum day, all of the people of Scotland, not just for the first time in 300 years, but for the first time ever, will be truly democratically sovereign. Everyone will have an equal say in the decision. And there'll be a moment for everyone in Scotland on referendum day when they stand in that polling booth and take the future of their country into their own hands. And that moment of uh, opportunity, that moment of engaged sovereignty, the moment of clarity and for many of reassessment will come on the 18th September. Let's call it Scotland's hour. Because in that moment, and I believe from then on, Scotland's future will be in Scotland's hands. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, First Minister. That was well received. And unfortunately, David Cameron didn't join us tonight. Maybe he's <laughs> preoccupied with events in Ukraine. Um, I'm going to ask some questions. I want to ask one myself before I, I open the floor. You're committed um, to a social union with England. And you, you made that clear in your Hugo Young lecture a couple of years ago. You're committed to a currency union. You're committed to a monarchical union. Um, given all this and the uncertainties you're creating for the Scottish people and Scottish business, surely your preference would be for some form of devolution max. Why go for independence? Well, go for independence because Scotland's a nation. I mean, the, the, the fundamental case for independence is national self-determination. But because you're a nation and because you have the right to claim sovereignty, that, that doesn't mean you, you look for absolute sovereignty in each area. No, no country does that. You know, when Mark Carney uh, made a speech in Edinburgh, which you know, I thought was a, a very good, very judicious speech, uh, where he was saying a monetary union involves the surrender of some sovereignty. All countries surrender some sovereignty. Uh, the point is in having the sovereignty that you are able in the first place to see in your best interest to surrender some of it. Uh, and I think it makes sense. Uh, the social union, does anybody seriously object? I mean, maybe Theresa May, I don't know, but does anybody seriously subject to the, to the, to, to, to the social union? Uh, the monarchical union existed between Scotland and England for 100 years before the political union, before the, the Treaty of Union of 1707. Uh, the currency union makes sense, not just for Scotland, but for, for the, the rest of the, the UK. And, and these are entirely reasonable policies 
for the, the SNP government to, to put forward. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Uh, but, uh, Jason, you'd mistake me if you didn't believe I was for independence. Oh, no, I, I believe I'm that. For, I, I'm for, well, good. <laughs> that, that but second. surely at the present but, time, and you can tell me off the record if you want, that surely you favour, at the moment, Devo Max. And you wanted no. it on the ballot paper, Nick. Yeah, off the record, uh, Jason, I'm for independence. Yeah. OK. <laughs> I, hope that but, doesn't, I hope that doesn't leak. And also, the, the, the question, I mean, it's quite, it's, quite, it's quite true. I thought it was a perfectly reasonable argument. Uh, that people's choices should be reflected in the ballot paper. The, the one thing uh, I insisted upon is independence would be in the ballot paper. That's, uh, that, that, was the, that was the point of it. But uh, the, uh, the arguments, uh, I think, are, are, are made in terms... Of this political union, uh, Jason, is not just the remaining thing. You know, that This one's quite important because it's the thing that dictates all of the other things I've been talking about this evening. It's the one that uh, allows you to to change society or not to change society allows it's the one which either means you go forward trying to implement progressive policies or you spend a lot of your time trying to ameliorate uh, policies which are being imposed from elsewhere. OK, First Minister, I, w- I won't ask another question in case we have a, a long answer and there's a lot of people with hands raised. Initially, I'm going to go for James Landau on the front row there, please, and then we, we should probably take questions in batches of three after this. Um, for all the campaigning that's taken place, public opinion in Scotland seems to be remarkably static. Uh, and if it doesn't change, we're going to lose. Um, what do you think you have to do over the next 200 days to change that? Well, well actually, I'm glad you asked me that question because we're actually releasing a pool of polls uh, tonight, uh, uh, which uh, shows all the, uh, from each company, the opinion poll average from uh, November, December, uh, January and February. Uh, and uh, it reads as, uh, uh, as follows. Uh, the, uh, the figure for, uh, this is a binary choice, yes, no, like explaining don't knows. Uh, yes has gone from 38% in November, 39% in December, uh, 41% in January, and 42% in February, including the, the most recent polls. Uh, now, James, you're quite right. Uh, if we continued at that rate of progress, uh, we would just miss uh, a, a magic majority. But I suppose my impression would be on recent experience, for example, in, in 2011, that as you move into the campaign proper, then the pace of change accelerates. Uh, I think we're moving in the right direction, but uh, I uh, also believe that, uh, uh, and this is at the very heart of uh, my, certainly my recent experience in politics, that at the end of the day, if you put a positive message up against a negative message, then you'll win an election or you'll win a referendum. And the only way a negative message wins a campaign is if up against another negative message. And if you do that, then the most negative message wins. But you put a positive message, uh, and uh, then you'll win the referendum, and we'll win it on that basis. Because at the end of the day, people will vote for something as opposed to against something. OK, we'll take three now. We'll take Tom first. And I'm not going to privilege everyone in the front row. Then Peter, and then the gentleman there. So Tom first. 
Um, right, so there's one thing I just don't entirely understand. The board says Scotland's future and Scotland's hands. Um, I quite agree with you that I imagine the UK's default position after you win, if you win, would be to want a currency union. But it's quite possible that the rest of the UK might decide if you wanted to go fiscally on a separate course that actually they didn't want to be in a currency union. And the thing that I don't genuinely understand is why you don't seem more accepting that that's a possibility and plan accordingly. If, you, if this is all about having your future in your hands, why would you get so hung up on a currency union? Well, Alex, you rightly expect your opponents, if you win however narrowly, to accept that this is the uh, uh, outcome for the long term. Equally, if you lose however narrowly, do you also accept that this settles the matter for some decades to come, that you won't go down the Parti Quebecois route some decades <coughs> ago, trying to reopen the issue every few years? And one more there, please. Second one. If um, you miss a magical moment and the outcome of the referendum is a no, um, what is your vision for a post-referendum Scotland after a no vote? Right, uh, in relatively quick succession, the Fiscal Commission Working Group, which is a high-powered uh, group by Andy's estimation, a couple of Nobel laureates, and uh, gave a, a full examination of currency policy options for an independent Scotland. Uh, they listed in that a range of options, many of which they considered to be viable for a country of Scotland's size and economic strength. But the best option, the favoured option, the one that they put forward and the one that they uh, the SNP government accepted was the option of a currency zone, a sterling zone or a currency union. So we'll advocate that the best option. That doesn't mean there aren't other options that are there for people to read and have been there for the last year and the Fiscal Commission's work is, is ongoing. But we'll put forward what is the best option. Uh, I agree with your assessment. I think what uh, Osborne and uh, et al, shall I call uh, Ed Balls and et al, Osborne and uh, Ed Bowles are, are saying today will be entirely different from what they say the, the day after the referendum for the reasons which I, I've given in the speech tonight. Uh, Peter, uh, I've said a number of times, so I'll say again to you, that I believe referendums are once in a generation opportunity. Uh, there was a referendum in Scotland in 1979, there was one in Ireland in 1997. That's my idea of a political generation, but can I just say for the benefit of the... Uh, uh, for the, uh, the press here and indeed for the benefit of the third questioner is I'm entirely focused on victory in this, uh, in this uh, referendum and while I'm happy to speak about all sorts of range of options and things that can or can't happen uh, you'll forgive me if I predicate them on a, a yes vote in September uh, as opposed to anticipating a, a, a negative result. Uh, just an observation of, of, of why I think that is not just the right sensible thing to say but it's also more important than that, I spent a lot of time, particularly a lot of time down here, in what could be called oppositionist politics. Uh, and there was a reason for that. When I became an MP, the SNP had three members of parliament in a, a House of Commons of 650. Uh, and if you're going to be noticed or be heard at all, then you had to jump up and down and, uh, and make sure that somebody noticed uh, or didn't realise there was only three of you. But the characteristic of that sort of politics, obviously, it's quite different from the politics of creating and the politics of governance. And, you know, roughly about 10 years ago, uh, I realised, and I'm amazed it took me so long, that if you actually wanted to win things and you wanted to persuade people to vote for something, then you had to adopt a different style uh, of argument. 
uh, and that had to carry through in everything you did. Uh, and so since then, and since I, uh, I came back as SNP leader in, in 2004, I've dedicated myself entirely to seeing the world in that, talking about what we want to do if the circumstances that we put forward come to pass. That's what we did in 2007. We did it again in 2011. We're going to do it in the referendum campaign. So this focus on a yes result is not just a part political answer. It's something really important if you're going to be successful. And the emphasis on positivity and an argument that's acceptable, not just acceptable to people in Scotland, but as far as possible, acceptable to as many people outside Scotland as possible, is absolutely critical in winning this argument. You win this argument by persuasion and engagement, not by diktat and orders. So that answers your third question about what might happen if there's a resounding no. Okay, I'm, I'll, I'll take Jerry here in the front, and then I'm going to take two behind. So you first, sir. Gen gentleman with the beard, and then the lady in front of him. You. You first, please. Thank you very much. Uh, Joey Jones from Sky News. Can I just ask you about the uh, debate with David Cameron issue that you return to so often? It would seem obvious to pretty much everybody in this room why David Cameron shouldn't do that and why it would be disastrous uh, for the campaign that he wants to support. If you genuinely believe there's the faintest chance of it happening, explain why. Explain what's in it for him. OK, so the gentleman there in the middle row, you, you had your hand up. Do you want to ask your question? Yep. Yeah, Okay, so it's the journalists, and then you, please, yes. Hi, um, I'm Siobhan, I'm a uh, London branch SNP member, and my question's actually quite similar to what that last guy asked. I'm quite concerned about uh, bias in the BBC and that the, the, what seems to me the biggest um, political question in our generation seems to either get mostly ignored or just tacked on in a kind of uh, jokey or, you know, it doesn't really look at the question really in depth and I'm, you know, a lot of stereotypes get pumped out and stuff like that and I'm quite concerned that the level of the debate isn't really reflecting the level of debate amongst, certainly amongst people that I know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Okay. I hope you read the New Statesman. There's certainly good debate in there this week. Yeah, um, I just want to say ahead. I've got great hopes for the New Statesman as becoming the first publication to declare for independence. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm confident. Oh! Jason. Tell that, tell Alex, it, let me tell you now. No, 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 no don't, don't, do it, don't ruin the moment, okay. Jason. Don't ruin the moment. They're, they're all going to speculate for the next couple of weeks. Don't ruin the moment. Let them Either that. way. You haven't been reading their leaders, do you? No, I haven't um, read the leaders, but <laughs> you've got three there, too. Okay. I'm no, very don't. grateful for your, your comments. The, Please answer those. Go ahead. The, I think the, the, the reason that people go in for... It's a bit like the run-up to the last uh, election, Jerry. The, if, if you remember, the, I don't think there was dramatic enthusiasm in 10 Downing Street for the debates, or for that matter from David Cameron. There was obviously dramatic enthusiasm from uh, uh, Nick Clegg, but, uh, the, and basically it became more of a problem to say no than to say yes. Uh, and this is a problem for the Prime Minister. Now, 
It wouldn't have been a problem if he'd kept to his initial position of saying, this is a matter for Scots. You know, let the Scots decide. They're having the debate. I don't have a vote, etc. Because he, he didn't keep to that position. He, he decided to, to uh, you know, make uh, statements from Mount Olympus. Uh, he decided to dispatch the, uh, the hit squad of uh, you know, William Hague and, uh, and George Osborne uh, up to Scotland. He, he put the whole cabinet up to Scotland. To, to, now, once you get into a debate, it's very difficult to avoid the debate that people want to see. Uh, and the, the percentage of people in Scotland who want to see that debate are massive, I mean, overwhelming. And therefore, it becomes a problem. There's also a democratic reason, incidentally. The, 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 and it's not just, uh, and I keep promising the, the debate to, to every broadcaster who asks me the question. So clearly, this would be a sky debate for Bob I can see all the disappointment. But, but, but there's also the point that it was David Cameron and I who signed the Edinburgh Agreement. Now, he signed the Edinburgh Agreement as Prime Minister, I signed it as First Minister, and that agreement sets out the framework for the, uh, the referendum campaign. Uh, and therefore, it seems reasonable, democratic, and thoroughly modern to have the television debate that is an essential part of all elections now and will be hereafter, and therefore should be of this referendum campaign. After that, of course, we can, I mean, I'll debate all on Sunday. But that's why I'm uh, keeping up the pressure on the, on the Prime Minister, because I think it's become and becoming and will become an even bigger political problem for him. Uh, in terms of the, the press, look, would I love if every Scottish newspaper was campaigning for independence? Absolutely. <laughs> I, would, uh, I would love that to be the situation. But the SNP won our first election in history in 2007 with both the major tabloids in Scotland campaigning vigorously uh, against us. Uh, indeed, the, the, the Sun front page in 2007 was a, uh, an SNP symbol as a noose. <laughs> uh, but it was quite good, actually, because people just thought it was the SNP symbol. So they didn't realize that <laughs> it was a kind of subliminal message, I think, or, or too complex a message, I think. Uh, but uh, by, uh, you know, it was a different story by, by 2011. But the point is that we won the election against that backdrop uh, of, uh, of a lot of press uh, hostility. Uh, and therefore, I would love it if the press were, were, uh, were different, but they're not. And so you, 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 you fight the campaign that you know can be won under these circumstances. There's you don't no think point. Rupert Murdoch's Scottish Sun would declare for you? Well, I've got great hopes of the New Statesman, I've got great hopes of the Sunday Herald, I've got great hopes of the Sun, I've got great hopes of a range of, uh, uh, of newspapers. But the question is right. If you assess the, the landscape as it is now, then let's put it this way, there'll be a a majority of papers who are campaigning vigorously against us. In fact, some people would argue that the no campaign is a, essentially a, an unholy trinity of the Mail, the Express and the Telegraph, uh, which, uh, you know, that is actually their campaign. Therefore, uh, that, is, that is the ground we're on. So, you know, you play the ball as it lies and you, and you get on with it. Now, why I don't think it matters anything like as much as it did, and I'll answer the third question in, in, in this as well. We're not in a position where the newspapers dictate and the, uh, uh, and the people obey. If we ever were, but if we ever were, that position is long gone. There are many other uh, forms. Of, I mean, I, I was watching uh, as Jason was putting up the various articles from the edition online on, on Saturday night, the trending of the, the various articles uh, in, in this edition, and it's got some splendid articles in it. Did you and read mine? Your one is particularly good. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, 
There's a bit about Alex Salmond being the most creative politician <laughs> in, uh, in Western Europe for 100 years. I thought that, that was why I thought you were coming out for independence, Jason, but no, man. I get, I get the message, Alex. I get you, the message. You get, you get lots of uh, opportunities which weren't there, uh, and that is very much the, the stuff of politics. And there is another aspect which I think is quite fundamental, and the contrast between the SNP cabinet in Port Leith and, and the UK cabinet you know, behind barbed wire, and, and that's metaphorical, they weren't actually behind barbed wire, in, uh, in the Shell head office in, in Aberdeen. The meeting in Port Leith uh, was like one of hundreds of meetings that are taking place at community level across Scotland at the present moment, and they're fundamentally important. It's even better if you get a lot of publicity for them like that meeting had. But there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that uh, replaces that style of campaigning. Not incidentally just because it's a means of communicating a message, it's how you communicate a message. Uh, because you can tell and sense the arguments which make sense to people, the arguments that convince, the arguments that don't convince, the style of campaigning that's effective in a way you can't do in a television studio. And the fact that such meetings get broadcast, as that one did live, I think, uh, uh, on Sky, uh, at least part of it anyway, it gives a you know, that is the perfect way to campaign. Don't underrate the extent to which uh, this campaign is going to be uh, won or lost on town hall style meetings. And very last point, Jason, and it's a point you actually make, I think, in, in, your, in your piece. This campaign is going to be a totally different demographic from a normal election campaign. There are people who are going to vote in this referendum who've never voted for 20 or 30 years. There are going to be people who are going to be registered to vote in this campaign who haven't been on the voters' roll since the poll tax. And there's a lot of people, incidentally, you know, if I, if I could give one piece of advice to Progressive England, a number of MPs have been on about this for ages and ages, don't underrate the people who are not on the voters' roll. You know, the, this country needs a registration campaign. Certainly and the order. referendum uh, is part of that registration campaign. There's a very good uh, article in Newsnight Scotland uh, which uh, about campaigning in Castle Milk this weekend, which, and it's a good balanced article. It doesn't say this is easy because it's not easy, but it does tell you what's being done. Don't underrate the extent to which the demographic of this referendum will change. Okay, I'll just bring the thing I wanted to ask you, um, and it's, you're, you're very pro-business. You're very keen to um, cut corporation tax um, in Scotland, make it lower than whatever the London Treasury sets, um, not popular with the left of your party. Mm. Um, your own personal polling among the fifth poorest Scots in, in your country is plus 26. So you have an extraordinarily positive rating among those who are least well off. The concern that some of your supporters who have spoken to me is that the there's a division now along class lines. You're losing the middle class and you're losing business. There's also a very active Business for Scotland group who are highly articulate and highly successful. But you, you quote some figures on... It, perhaps the reason is people... You know, I don't advocate a lower corporation tax because I want to make people rich. I advocate a lower taxation rate because I know that the Scottish economy will need things to resist the gravitational pull of London. Uh, I made a, a great amount of that uh, in the speech. This is a, a real issue. And won't unless you, you've won't got, you damage the north of England, the northeast of well, England, people with whom you have unity, which uh, social I also I also made a uh, an issue of uh, in the speech because I, I think there is a way to 
to reconcile and encompass. Uh, I do believe that we need to rebalance economic growth in these islands. I do believe in this Northern Light Ferry. I believe in the Borderlands Initiative, which we're encouraging. Incidentally, some representatives from North England councils came to the SNP Cabinet meeting in the, in the, in the Borders uh, to, talk about, uh, to talk about these things. Uh, and I think there's a great opportunity for uh, transport initiatives. I mean, we're building a fast rail in this country, and I saw a very <laughs> a substantial piece this weekend, really the first time, uh, of uh, somebody of authority saying, why are we building this fast rail south to north? Why aren't we building it north to south? <laughs> you know, why is it going to be, what, 50 years of what it gets to the north of England? You know, what possible use is that for addressing economic okay, inequality? Let's hear from, so more people. That, I'm going to go try and go to, if you, you know, forgive me, I just want to get some more people in from the back as time's tight. Um, there's a lady who has a hand up at the very, well, it's two. Yes, you, madam, and then the, la the lady just in front of you, you two, and then one other, the gentleman, who should I go for? Um, George on the front row. So, someone I knew, Paul, two ladies at the back and then George. Okay. And then we'll try and get a few more in if, if, if we can. Um, parallels are drawn constantly between Catalonia and Scotland, but uh, you usually refuse them, say, saying they are totally different cases. I wonder if you are concerned that if you say publicly uh, in any situation that Catalonia should have the same right as Scotland to do a referendum like the one you agreed with David Cameron in 2012, then Madrid might get concerned or somehow may be a bit more angry with you and trying to be to you. Uh, more than he's already threatening to, you, to do in the EU, for example. Okay, Thanks. thank you. And then, just in front. Thank you. Hi, uh, I want to know why you were unwilling to disclose the, the legal advice regarding the EU. You spoke of your commitment to social justice in your speech and suggested that Scotland would adopt a different approach to taxation. Would an independent Scotland reintroduce the 50p tax on incomes over 150,000, as Labour has now pledged to do? Okay. So Spain, hey, I've never said that they're totally different cases. What I've pointed out is in Scotland, after a lot of negotiations, we have a, an agreed process. Uh, and that's what makes the cases different. Uh, it's not about a comment on uh, Catalonia's aspirations or, or people of Catalonia. It's to say that you have to get an agreed process. I mean, Jason asked me a question earlier on about uh, Devil, Devil Max on the ballot paper. Uh, it was crucial to get an agreement through the Edinburgh Agreement because this is a consensual process in Scotland and a lot hangs on that consent. Uh, and incidentally, in that consent, there is a a valuable lesson for, for lots of people in, uh, in, in lots of places. Uh, in terms of, we've published the Scotland Europe document which is based on the legal advice of the, 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 that we've received uh, and uh, it's a comprehensive document that argues the route and, and that we approach, uh, that we take to, to the question. It's a very well-founded uh, document uh, uh, and uh, we are confident of that, uh, of that position. In terms of the white paper, we said that we are not, we don't have proposals for changing taxation. We certainly are not going to put ourselves in a tax disadvantage with uh, the, the rest of the UK. In terms of the approach to social justice, I think that's validated by the policies we've pursued in administration. And if I had to point to one policy which I think will transform uh, inequality uh, in, the, in this country, then you should look very carefully at the, the policies for transformational childcare. 
uh, which I think are absolutely fundamental uh, in terms of, uh, I mean, I've argued about the, them tonight in terms of the benefits to the economy and how it makes the case for controlling both sides of the balance sheet. The equally important arguments are the emancipation of people back into the workplace and what that can do for families. And secondly, the child development, uh, which I think is fundamental to change some of these statistics we're seeing. Finally on that, the, the Scottish Parliament uh, had actually, up until this point, in terms of child poverty, has had a pretty good record. Uh, it's decreased substantially since 1999 and continued to do so even over the last three to four years. But the warning signs in terms of social security changes uh, are absolute in terms of where the families, where these changes are going to impact on families. Uh, and the forecasts of tens of thousands, perhaps more, or more children in poverty, unless we change these things, uh, I think are absolutely soundly based. OK, I'm aware you have to do your broadcast interview, so should we take three more? Um, I will come to you, sir. I, let's take four. Um, Gentleman in the pale blue shirt with your left hand raised in the middle. Can we get a microphone to him? The lady at the very back with spectacles. Um, then Anthony Barnett. And then, sir, do you want to come in? You've been very patient, so there'll be the four. So the gentleman with the pale blue shirt. Thank you. You first, sir. Okay, we, maybe the First Minister will address that. Okay, the EU question. No, there's, there's latest, a feeling you haven't answered. The latest question on Catalonia was. No, there, there was a second question about. Well, the, as I said, we, we published the Scotland and Europe document, which was published on the same day as the White Paper, which is based on the legal advice we've received. Uh, by a long-standing uh, position, I mean, that's based on the legal advice, and there's, there's no dispute about that. Uh, they don't dispute about legal advice, they dispute about whether the, the paper has been published. The Scotland and Europe document was published on the same day as the White Paper. It's available to read. It's on the, uh, it's on the government's... Uh, website, you're, you're, you're free to read it. It sets out, the white paper crystallises it, it sets out the process by which we believe Scotland will become an independent member of the European Union using Article 48. This matter is being well examined in the Scottish Parliament committees at the present moment. It's received uh, uh, some very, very powerful support from okay. people like David Edwards, Court of Justice, from Secretary Generals, past Director Generals. It doesn't quite get as much enthusiasm from President Barroso, uh, but there's been a bit of a, a Barroso backlash uh, in, uh, across Europe in terms of the, the, the position of his, uh, of his statements. Uh, I was told uh, that accused of the, the SNP not, not be very kind to uh, President Barroso actually he was called absurd by David Edwards, the Court of Justice. He was called arrogant by the former Czech president and inappropriate by the leader of the French so you're, Senate. You're, on these you're very keen on him. So um, we're, we have, uh, no, we I, have I'm those just, four questions. I, I'm, just, I'm just quoting others. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to uh, refer to uh, just about one sentence I think that uh, Mrs. Salmon raised about Trident. Now that may be a sentence which is a lot more than you often hear in this country. Um, so. May I congratulate you at least for a very clear um, statement that you would not continue uh, on Scottish territory with the Trident base. I'm a member of the Labour Party and uh, we're supposed to have had a great debate, but it's time that this debate also, I think, uh, was rekindled uh, in this country as well. I'd be interested to know what you, what you think, the, uh, if, if Scotland did vote for independence, what the implications of that would be. Are you a unilateralist, sir? 
Uh, that's, uh, I would be in favour of this country, as South Africa did, renouncing right. its weapons of mass destruction. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, at the far back, you've been waiting. Have you got a microphone? Okay, it's coming your way. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to know what you're actually going to do, concrete examples of what you're going to do to stop Edinburgh being the dark star of an independent Scotland and how we're not just replacing London for Edinburgh. I come from Caithness. The hospital's phone number is 50-50. You've got a 50-50 chance of coming out alive. Wow. Our uh, train that goes north from Inverness to Thurso is two carriages. One's got the toilet, the other's got the lights. So your own metaphor, the dark star is being used against you. Anthony Barnett? In the second row, is a microphone, please. And then we'll have one more, and then we, we really must wrap up. Thank you, yes. Uh, um, I want to ask you a question about England. Uh, as an, I'm an Englishman who uh, would like you, your country to vote yes. And um, there's a very entertaining piece, uh, article by Will Self in The New Statesman, uh, in this issue, where he basically says... Um, you know, he was for independence, but perhaps, you know, we, 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 it makes this point that uh, the, the caricature of the Scots are sort of canny and, and mistrustful. This is projection. This is really what we English think of ourselves as being. And we need Scotland to save us in a way from ourselves. And there's a kind of nerveless failure of a desire for self-government in England, it seems to me, and I wondered whether you've reflected on that and how uh, we English can grasp, the, be inspired by what you're doing. Good. And the last question, because we have Four the interviews. Okay. The gentleman uh, there in the front where he's been waiting. Could you put a microphone here, please? Eleanor, thank you very much. Uh, no, no, sir, it's this gentleman here in the very front row. I apologise. Yeah, I'll speak up. It's uh, Felix Martin here. Um, I didn't recognise you about your beard. No, I know, without my yeah. beard. Um, it's, uh, you painted, I found your case very persuasive, but there was one thing I thought was a strange sort of contradiction. You painted a very vivid picture of what is wrong with the economy south of the border, the dark star in London and the black hole in the balance of payments that will appear when Scotland leaves and so on. And yet, you are very keen to, uh, to yoke yourself to this in this currency union. Um, why is this the case? Clearly, you think the economies are different. Clearly, they will diverge even more. Why is that the best option? I don't think it's a very good answer which will wash to say some clever chaps told me to do it on the Fiscal Commission, many of whom, I, I would point out, don't even live in Scotland. Um, so why is it that, you, why is it that you, you want to do that? What's the positive case, as you said, the positive case is important, for being in that currency union with this dark star economy? Right, well, the, the fact that the clever chaps don't stay in Scotland didn't seem to me all that relevant to, to asking for the advice of Jim Burleys or, or, Joe, or Joe Stieglitz. I, I thought I would take the best advice that was uh, available and, uh, uh, and uh, I've got no reason to believe, believe that, uh, that either of these or indeed the other economists on the Fiscal Commission uh, were doing anything other than uh, giving us their best advice and it's really good advice and one of the bits of advice in the Fiscal Commission Working Group report has a full page of the economic levers that we don't have at the present moment, which we will have in a currency union. Uh, a whole, not just uh, tax and spend policies, but also the full range of competition policy, oil and gas policy, uh, a, a range of, uh, of other economic levers. I mean, a full page of uh, levers. Now, none of these things we have control of at the present moment, Felix. All of these things we'd have control of in uh, 
uh, in, uh, in independent Scotland, one within uh, a sterling zone. On the, uh, the question of Trident, uh, it, uh, it was, um, I, I love the way you asked the question. It was one sentence, uh, and I wish it could have been a, a lot more. We've had a, a long-standing opposition to nuclear weapons in the SNP. Uh, Trident will be removed from Scotland as, long, as soon as it can safely be uh, arranged. Uh, I can't dictate, of course, whether the rest of the UK will want to continue to be a nuclear power. Uh, if they took my advice, the answer would be no, they shouldn't. Uh, but I can't dictate that. But what I could estimate, uh, I think an independent Scot will make the idea of Trident renewal uh, totally out of the question. Uh, I, I think even within the structures now, it's... Uh, there are, uh, it's a balance. It certainly would uh, kill the, the idea of Trident uh, renewal, in my esti estimation. Uh, we are not going to repeat the dark star. Listen, the, if the, if the SMB government uh, were, were, as you thought, in terms of regional disparity, we wouldn't have won the election in 2011 in every single area of Scotland. Uh, north, south, east, west. The remarkable thing about the SNP victory was that uh, it wasn't concentrated at all in any part of Scotland. It was right uh, across uh, the country. Uh, in terms of concrete policies then, I think we'll have to get the toilets on the trains uh, and uh, sort out the, the hospital. But I, I would just point out that uh, if you look at the latest census, uh, then you'll see the Highlands and Isles of Scotland are one of the fastest growing areas of population now. Uh, a popular, depopulation that was changed in the 1960s by Tom Johnson and the, the Hydroelectric Board and, uh, and now and particularly over the last 10 years, is going in a totally different uh, uh, direction. So the, the idea that rural Scotland is being held back, and in fairness to, to my area of the northeast of Scotland, Edinburgh actually isn't the most prosperous area of Scotland, it's the northeast of Scotland at the, uh, at the present moment. But that importance of having an economic policy which meets and, and, and seeks support from the entire country is of fundamental importance, as indeed it is in terms of uh, society as a whole. Uh, can I say about Will Self's article? Uh, <laughs> I thought it was really good, actually, but uh, I, can't, I can't quote from it because if I quote from what Will says uh, about England, it'll be projected onto me as if I'd said it about. But I, I did like, uh, I did like the, the idea. And I, I took from his article support for, for Scottish independence. Uh, and I don't actually think uh, Will is, does have a, a downer. He, he actually says that he thinks Scottish independence will allow people in England to confront some of the issues that need to be confronted here. Uh, I, I was once asked, I think, by... Uh, <laughs> I'll never quite know what well, he Well, uh, I mean, I've missed out a few of the terms, admittedly, because I'm not allowed to say them, but nonetheless, that's the... the um, I was once asked by uh, Jeremy Paxman, uh, oh, Jason, no. yeah, uh, about uh, a lot of people not believing uh, about independence, and I said back to him, I said, yeah, he's quite right, a lot of folk in the country I've got doubts about independence and self-government, their ability to be an independent nation. But in my estimation, the people of England were well capable of independence. Uh, and it's not, it's not just a, a good reply to, uh, to Jeremy Paxton. It's, it's actually absolutely true that this country, of all countries, has the reservoir. I mean, this country is so much better than the Westminster government. I mean, it's simply so much better, and uh, there's, it might well provide that catalyst. I hope it will. 
and uh, was... to provide a different answer to real questions in this country and take charge of this nation's resources and distribute them properly. Yes, I, I said there'd be no more questions, but one gentleman's waiting very, yeah, very patiently at the very is, back. So uh, as briefly a, as you can, sir. Sure, this is a decent question to finish off uh, the evening. Thank you. Um, if you read any of the works of religious prophets, the one word that comes up more than anything else is the word will, things will happen, things will come to pass. First Minister, your speeches and your documents contain the word will rather a lot. Do you consider yourself a political prophet? <laughs> no, that's because I had will self write the speech. Uh, <laughs> No, that wasn't bad, actually. They, uh, no, the, uh, I, 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 I quoted uh, a, a few uh, prelates uh, in the speech, but uh, I, I tend, no, I don't consider myself uh, a, a religious prophet uh, or a prophet, or uh, I consider myself uh, a politician who is privileged to be in a position to put forward uh, a positive case for national independence for my country. And I'm going to do, over the next six months, everything I can possibly do, not just to, to win that argument, but to, to win that argument in the right way, to win that argument by engaging people across the country in what the country can actually do. Uh, and I believe we'll win. I've got that feeling in my bones, but I also know absolutely for certainty that we will fight that campaign in such a way as when we look back and say, look, that campaign itself made the country a better, more engaged, progressive place. I think that was even warmer than when you arrived, so you've, you've convinced a few people out there. Again, I'm very grateful for you coming down to Westminster to, to address the audience here so openly, to take questions. We could have gone on, of course. Um, you're not a prophet. We, we accept that. <laughs> but there's one thing worth bearing in mind. The SNP going into the Scottish election in 2011, the final four weeks of the campaign were about, what, 15%, 20% behind in the polls, and they turned it round in four weeks and won a landslide. Just worth bearing that in mind. Um, there's actually a drinks reception for those of you who wish to say below ground in something called the Marble Hall which sounds like a Ukrainian oligarch's flat in London but it's, <laughs> it's below this, this level if you want to stay for a drink I think the First Minister you'll be joining us yeah, sure. after, after you've done your broadcast interviews thank you very much everyone Thanks again. Thanks. Great fun. Yeah, good Great fun. fun. Great fun. Thanks very much. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.